Inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3733 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And what a treat it is to connect with a legendary engineer, a guy who came up at a time when the studio scene was absolutely thriving. Cats would go in like this cat uh, before the sun came up and he might probably would leave after the sun went down. He would never even see the sun. Uh, he would put together bands in the studio like the one we were just listening to who'd come in late night in a debaucherous fashion and create albums on the fly because they were just studio cats, uh, and uh, you know it was it was just an incredibly elastic time in music. It was before my time, and my guest has continued to survive uh, in the age of digitization. Uh, Jay Messina, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. Thank you. Good to be here. Did you catch? Great to hear that track. Uh, yeah, the Jones man, the Jones yeah. White Elephant. Now, so I. So let me just uh, tee this up because it was uh, it was Mayneri's birthday the other day, and I want to read you what he said about that session when I interviewed him. He said, "Because I was producing and arranging on quite a few projects, I had access to some of the large studios in New York. I used to call Cats and ask them if we'd be free uh, if we were they were free to jam. We'd have five guitars: McCracken, Spinoza, Sam Brown, Bob Mann, Joe Beck." Two drummers, Donald McDonald and Steve Gadd. Two or three bass players, Tony Levin, Chuck Rainey. Horn sections, and on and on and on. On White Elephant, I didn't actually, well, whatever. He, You know, the point is it just sounded to me like that was just a late night. Can you talk about your involvement with the White Elephant album? And I mean, was that just some sort of like, you know, just late night? Uh, I, I have it on vinyl, and I love it dearly. You know, I just like, I mean, the fact that you were engineering that is just incredible. Sure, many, many late nights and all fun. Uh, I was working at A&R at the time, and Phil Ramone, the, one of the owners, uh, he was really cool with letting the people just coming, coming up, the engineers just coming up, get into the studio whenever they had the opportunity when the studio was down. Uh, and my friends back then, I was fortunate enough to have friends like Mike Maneri and Steve Gadd and Yuli McCracken, so uh, uh, Mike was just getting into getting this band together and getting more into getting his arranging chops uh, happening. So, and I wanted to learn more about engineering and sharpen my skills. So I thought it was a perfect combination. I asked Mike to, you know, I made the studio available to Mike at any, most of the time it had to begin at midnight because of the, all the cats were working. And uh, that's how we got, got started. And uh, before I knew it, it helped me in my career because one day Phil Ramon says, hey, I've been hearing a lot of good things from some of the cats uh, about what you've been doing in the, in the studio. And, right. you know, the, your musicians, they're your salesmen as far as if you're an engineer. And uh, so it got back to Phil and, uh, and then... It started to make some noise, and uh, before we knew it, Mike had a, a deal with uh, Michael Lang to go ahead and, and uh, uh, you know, turn it into an actual album. I turned it into a double album. It was on, it was on Just Sunshine or something? Just Sunshine, yeah, that was the label. I mean, that was one of the hippest, that had the fabulous rhinestones on it, uh, the, white, the White Elephant, uh, so much uh, the Voices of East Harlem. I mean, you know, Jay, I, I just, you know, I... I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it, but I mean, can you talk about the jazz life from your perspective in terms of the musician's life at that time when you were hanging with uh, and getting to know cats like Gad and 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 Huey McCracken? Uh, Murata didn't even pick up the drum the drumsticks till nineteen. But my point is that in today everything's commodified, everything's quantified, and quite honestly, you can get everything down to the zeros to the zero point zero one. I mean, you can get it to the T. And yet, at that time, to me, it really, the overarching point was about making really spiritual music. And it wasn't about the bottom line per se. But I'd like you to take, I mean, I wasn't born at that time. So I'd like you to talk to me a little bit about 
the emphasis and the point of view of the musicians going into an, a session like White Elephant or, uh, you know, before the efficiency model really took over the entire recording industry? Well, I feel really fortunate that I was around for that, that time period because today making music is, you know, it, it's, a, it's like a formula more than anything else, and anybody can put together a bunch of samples at home and create loops, and, uh, you know, there's that story of the uh, singer that's in the, in the studio and asks the engineer how that uh, take was, and the engineer says, oh, that sucked, come on in. Like, we, we can fix know, it. We you, can, no, that, you're a, done. We'll fix a, it. Emil, now, Emil yeah. Richards told me that exact story. You know, it's like, you know, it, it's authenticity. These cats are really amazing musicians. You know, uh, yeah, and they had to be because you know that's that's where the technology was at. And uh, un- unfortunately, the one of the frustrations that I face these days is great musicians who learn a little bit about the technology of today and they get so hung up in the technology they they they've got part of their focus is on the technology and how they're going to fix this later or what I'm going to do with this later instead of just going in and playing and uh, you know that's the frustrating part for me you know I'll ask where do you want to set up and you know anywhere they said would be fine with me I, and cuz my sense is always about it's the music first and what you want to do is make everybody comfortable and everybody has fun and you get the best performance. If you don't get a good performance, who cares how technically good it sounds? You exactly. know, it really doesn't make a difference. Uh, so what I find is uh, guys get into, uh, like I mentioned, somebody will say, where do you want to set up? They'll say, well, I would set up there, but we'll be, it'll be too much leakage if I set up there and the guitar player is going to be there. And that's where their energy goes. And that, that's why I'm there. And I usually tell them, I'll worry about that. I'll let you know if that's going to be a problem. You just set up wherever you're going to have the most fun. And that's my take. And more and more uh, musicians I see these days... Uh, if they know they can make a mistake, uh, it can be fixed. They'll make a mistake. You know, it's the that's what is so nice about a live performance. You know, sometimes you'll hear a goof or or something that's not just right, but mm-hmm. generally there's a certain magic and energy to a live performance that takes over. Uh, you know, that's the the essence of the of the performance is that energy that happens because nobody's thinking about uh, uh, any of this technical business. They're just playing. And that's what I try to uh, achieve in the studio. Let them forget about the fact that they're in the studio. Uh, It's hard because all of a sudden everybody's wearing headphones. Uh, Doesn't always have to be, you know, if everybody can hear each other, I'd, you know, I, I do it without phones. But um, so that, that's the biggest thing that, that I find in this world with, with the, uh, uh, the technology, which I embrace a lot of it. I mean, if you want to resequence an album these days, it, it could take literally maybe five seconds. You know, if you, let's, let's try the second song, fifth, and switch those two. You know, you could do that in five seconds where with tape, you know, that's like a 20 minute, uh, 15 to 20 minute process. So there's elements of what's going on today uh, technically that I like and embrace, but there's a lot of it that's, uh, you know, you miss that uh, that energy and and the uh, that just fine musicianship. That you, like you heard on that opening piece. Those well, I mean, just, I mean you, and so many, wrong. so many. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, you, you real when you were coming up, I mean, the albums that you were engineering. I, I mean, I have most of them, the obscure ones. Uh, you know, I, I, my pocket of of love of music is that early '70s pocket, and these guys, there were no jazz schools. They were learning on the streets. They were learning 
they were doing looping on their own and, and you know, Steig, Jeremy Steig was doing watercolor painting while Donald McDonald and these guys were, you know, and, and uh, they were putting loops together. I mean, were you the kind of cat, can you talk about a session that you remember where you would set up a room full of musicians and you'd see who needed more bass and more treble in their, in their amp and they, and they did, so you made the room sound great first, okay? And then you would mic the room instead of miking individuals. Did you, is that, was that the way you did it? Well, I would usually, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the goal is to get it sounding good in the room. Um, so you want the guitar amps to sound good coming out of the, the amp. Uh, and I always say, uh, like if somebody says, how do you get a good drum sound? Uh, my usual stock answer is you get a good drummer, <laughs> then you get a good set of drums, and you put it in a good room, and you find the the right mics, and you put them in the right place, and you go through some uh, you know decent preamps, and in that order. Uh, so uh, to answer your question, I w I generally mic all the individual instruments once they're all sounding right. I try to pick the right mics, uh, put them in the right place, and then I would add some room mics to add, add to it. You know, I, when I was first coming up, the idea of having so many mics and miking uh, uh, every individual drum, uh, you know, you had to kind of like uh, keep up with the changes uh, as people start doing that. You know, when you mic each individual drum and have some overheads and room mics, you have the option of how much clarity and definition you want on each drum. Uh, so when people started to do that, add more mics, you kind of have to go along with it. And uh, just so that your record is going to sound as loud or as, as clear as the, as the next one on the radio. Interesting. That's really interesting. So, because I was going to talk about this when I talk to guys like uh, Danny Korchmar, he's like, you know, it's not, it has nothing to do with digital versus analog. Because I'm, you know, always going back to this warm sounding time, the white elephant time uh, of of how the record sounded. He goes, it's really how you mic, how you mic things. And I, so, I mean, but you you, the music got louder. The the, the music began to become like machine gun fire in some way especially when you had uh you know a lot of the the dr electronic drum machine disco came in and all of a sudden a lot of that more uh esoteric music sort of it just had to get louder because you had to keep up with the joneses am i hearing that correctly i mean you really wanted to make sure that it sounded comparable to your competitors on the airwaves yeah, well, like even now, you don't want to mix a record so that it's so much louder than uh, the uh, counterparts uh, in, you know, in that genre. Because if you're going to listen, like today, if you're going to listen on some kind of playlist, you don't want people to have to like turn the volume down or up. You want it to be like kind of in the ballpark. And same thing with, with the miking technique. Um, like Led Zeppelin, you know, very few mics on the drums. And it's got that real open sound. And it's, it still sounds great to this day. But if you were to play that next to something that is being recorded and mixed now, you'd, you'd miss, uh, uh, it wouldn't bother me, but uh, you would miss the clarity of, all the nuances of every little drum that you would get by having a mic right there by a, that drum. Uh, I like that open sound. So what I do, and I'm not the only one, I mean, that's pretty much what guys do these days. You put the close mics and then you have room mics also, so you could get the best of both worlds. Talking to Jameis Cena here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Uh, you had, did you have an how did you get the opportunity to go down to, to Stax Records in to do the Melting Pot album with Booker T? I, I did. I did that at A and R. 
So how did that come? How did that fall into your lap? I mean, that is one, that's a seminal album of you know uh, Memphis soul instrumental music. You know, how did that happen? Yeah, um, probably. I mean, this was when I was at A and R, and I was uh, on staff there, and I was starting to make a little noise. Uh, you know, so that the way you would get booked on a session back then is the the booking department would get a call from the, a label, generally, and book the studio time, and wouldn't necessarily ask for an engineer. And if they didn't, you would get assigned to, you know, what am I doing today? Well, you're doing this <laughs> book a tea session. You know, go oh, great. And I think uh, I did half of it, and I think Shelly Yakis did, did half of it. I don't know if I did all of that record or not. Uh, it's interesting, because I just finished a, a record with, uh, that Steve Cropper played on. Uh, it's a Blues Brothers record. He's still in that band with Trope and those cats, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I did it. I did it like old school. You know, I had everybody in, the, in, a, in a big room. Right. The, voc the singers... Uh, drums, the horn players, everybody in the room, and Eddie Floyd, who sang on a couple of tracks, said, I love it, man. He says, this is the way we used to do it all the time. And you hear it in, in the music, you know, there's a, uh, a, a magic, you know, it's, uh, maybe it doesn't have that crystal clear clarity of every single element that's there musically, uh, like I was describing about having just those uh, the close mics and maybe not so many room mics, but once you have the vocals in the room and the horns and everybody's in the same room, you know you get that leakage. But that leakage is where the magic is. That's what's going to make it sound like you're there, you're in the room. So that was my approach to that, and the cats really liked uh, playing that way, and uh, I liked the way it came out. This is fascinating. I mean, could you speak to the idea of how music within our culture has changed? Because you're identifying something, this crystal clear clarity, which is, you know, we need this, these, uh, my, you know, my wife and I, we, we caught our TV. <clears throat> we don't want our kids really watching a lot of TV, but, you know, it's like they, we need crystal clear clarity. We need this perfect sound auditorily as opposed to feeling, as opposed to feeling the music, that the music, that music feels good. I mean, how has music changed as far as as it as its impact and its its importance relevance to our culture? Because most of the cats I talk to, you know, you listen back to uh, certain periods of of melodic improvisational music, uh, even you know rock music. I mean, it's just burning. The music is just burning. And to me, you listen now, and it's, it seems like music is made for pacification. And I wonder if you agree with that. And also. Uh, how the, how that has to do like you said le within the leakage that's where the magic is but people can't identify uh, people can't identify that in the new in the new in the new era yeah absolutely uh, uh, i agree uh, it's just the uh, uh, because of the technological advances you can fix every little right, thing and right, right. that's the art of recording these days is knowing when to stop it's like when you paint a picture, you could paint over a gorgeous picture if you don't know when to stop. Ugh. And you could just completely cover it. And that's what happens with, with music. I've seen, I've recorded uh, like a big band, and uh, the, uh, one of the cats in the band, a horn player, I won't mention any names, uh, admittedly said that it was just learning... Um, Pro Tools, and he, I think he even mentioned that he, he knows enough to just kind of to be dangerous, and recorded uh, this killer tracks uh, with a big band, a full you know big band and a lot of rhythm, and they'd come in and just okay, so let's do the the uh, trumpets and bones over again, uh, so that you'd have more control later. T telling me that, and. Uh, and this is like what I mentioned about the, the frustrating part. Right. You know, he's telling me, you know, what I should be doing. And then meantime, 
when he's done with his part, he's going to leave, and I'm going to. I have to mix it. And um, the thing is that it technically it makes sense what he's saying because now everything is going to be perfectly right. There's no clams in there. There's everybody is. You know, you could line up digitally so that they're all hitting exact. So technically, I mean, logically, you might say that makes sense. But music isn't really about logic. No, you know, it's, it's not. About That's feeling. exactly right, man. It's not quantifiable. I, I, the music, music is not quantifiable. And that's mind-boggling. I mean, I, I, it's so frustrating because you are getting paid for these gigs. But, man, it's got to be mind-numbing to have cats who are just, you know, those cats that used to come into White Elephant, they were like, you know, we know what our job is. We want to play our t- play our, play what we need to play, say what we need to say, and and do it as best we can. And we'll let we'll let Jay figure out how to mic the room and engineer it. And it's like everybody's got their hands because of the ability to, you know, it, again, younger artists. I'm not talking about necessarily older guard, but. Younger artists have been brought up that they have to be their own PR people. They have to do everything now for themselves. You know, there are no, there's mm-hmm. no record industry anymore. So they, they sort of feel like they have to have their hands in nine cookie jars. But it's really, actually, a disservice to the to the peeps that really know what they're doing because I mean they're getting in the way of it. You know, and then ultimately you have to mix something that you don't even think sounds that good. Yeah, I, I, some of the best producers I've worked with have the, the the least amount to say. They they put the right people together. And they let them do their, their thing. And it's, it's like the white elephant sessions that we used to do at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Those are some of my best recollections because they were in there just playing. I was in, you know, it was playing for me too. So it was not getting hung up and, you know, what if we make a mistake? And, uh, and some of the best sessions I like doing, I've done uh, a number of directed two-track jazz sessions, one of which was uh, Benny Golson and Curtis Fuller. Oh, man. And, what year was that? Uh, what's that? What year was that? Uh, probably maybe in the early 90s. I think uh, that particular record was, was it, uh, did, uh, I think it was the same uh, instrument, uh, the same guys, that did the, it was a bluesette, or uh, it was a record done in the 50s, and I think it was all the same guys. I'm uh, looking at it right here, up, but bluesette part two. Uh, yeah, I think that's Curtis it. Curtis so, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, so they wanted that to sound uh, like a mix of a crossover of what the first one sounded like, plus a little bit of the newer uh sound that was going on but so when i walked in the studio the assistant had set up uh, i had told them how i wanted the room set up uh, ahead of time but when i walked in there was a gobo between curtis and benny and when i forgot who it was but one of those guys walked in and so i just left it there for the moment and one of them walked in and says what's this shit (laughs) you know so i said okay it's gone you know and i just took it right out of there and, um, you know, so th- that's my uh, philosophy about music. It's, it's all about the, the music. If they're not playing, it's like you're, if you're going to record a vocal, and I always tell whenever I do workshops at any of the schools, I tell them it's about the music. You can't, you have to know all your electronics like the back of your hand. Uh, so you don't have to be thinking about that because if somebody's out there ready to sing and you take 20 minutes to find the right EQ and whatever you're doing for your own ego inside to get your pristine sound or whatever your sound might be, uh, if after 20 minutes they don't feel like singing, you blew it. You know, it's much more important to press, just press record when they're ready and get that performance. Um, I can tell you a quick story if Please. you want. Please, yeah, go ahead. Exemplif- yeah, exemplifies yeah. that. I was, uh, 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 this couple came in. She was a singer, and her boyfriend was the drummer. And they were gonna, it, was, it was like a demo. They were going to do four songs. And this was at Record Plant Studios. So I said, do you want to sing with the band? So, you know, for a little 
you know, spontaneity. <laughs> and, right. uh, <laughs> uh, so she said, no, no, I definitely want to be in the control room so I can hear the, the takes. So I used up all of the room in the, in the studio for, you know, where I would, I would have saved a spot for her to be out there. But I used all the spot, st- stuff, the space. And um, so it wasn't happening. So she says, maybe I should sing. I said, okay. So I just put her in the hallway. She didn't even have a line of sight into the, uh, the room. I just gave her a, a 58, SM58, cheap, like $100 mic. And she sang, and they, they got all the takes. So after we got all the, the four tracks, then it was time to, to do her vocals. So I gave her an 87, $2,000 mic. She sings the vocals. Now it's time to, to mix. And I'm listening, and I said, you know, does anybody mind if we listen to those live vocals? Usually if you put it that way, most people will say, no, go ahead, let's listen. And it was like night and day, Jake. Uh, $100 mic, $2,000 mic. Uh, the fact that she was uh, just caught up in the moment and being present and just singing and not thinking about a performance and do all the thinking that, that gets in the way of being present and getting in the zone, uh, that vocal was so much better. It was, wasn't even a contest. You're nailing that. I, I love this, dude. I can tell you, you're, 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 you're waxing poetic right now. And, and it's nothing to do with the sonics. Now, maybe if I would have had that $2,000 mic in front of her when she did that live vocal, maybe sonically it would have sounded a little better probably would have but that wasn't the essence of of what my function was there i wanted to capture the magic that happens there that's 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 what i do that's what i strive for anyway and and that was a perfect example of well we're gonna i want to i want to play this piece of music we're talking to a legendary um engineer uh jamesina let's listen to this uh tune and then we'll uh Come back and break it down, okay? Sure. on the Jake Feinberg Show brought to you by Abbott Taylor Jewelers, the Jewish Federation of Southern Arizona, and the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona. Among other sponsors of the Jake Feinberg Show, we thank them for their support so we can play legendary tracks like that for Jay Messina. What do you got for us, man? What do you think that is? So that sounded like uh, Jeremy Steig. You got it. Eddie, Go- Eddie Gomez. Yep. Uh, I've interviewed Eddie, uh, Don Elias, Jeremy, and uh, and Eddie. That that track was called Waves off Wayfaring Stranger on Blue Note Records. Now, 
were you out at Van Gelder for that? No. Uh, uh, am I, am I listed on that? I, I mean, because I've done a few records with Jeremy. Okay, well, and I mean, I'm just going, lots of records I, with Eddie. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to make sure that we address the all-music guide here because uh, you're, what they have you credited on here, uh, your, really your first session as an engineer, 1970, Wayfaring Stranger. Oh no, no. <clears throat> then, but that, first... that, that was with Eddie and, and Jeremy. You know, I mean, that was that, that, that Don Elias. So, I mean, that was. I think it might have been on Solid State. I don't. But it was on. You know, it, it's giving you full credit as engineer. Rich Mays was an. Sonny Lester was the producer. Right, I've worked with Sonny. Uh, so was that at A and R? If it was at at uh, Van Gelder's, uh, that wouldn't. No, have no, been no. Me. You know what it is? It's it's that um, it, the it, it got it got pressed on Solid State. Uh, so, so, so talk about Sonny Lester as a producer. This cat to me is one of these cats that I'd love to hear about his, his hands-off approach because uh, th this, this album, it, it doesn't, I mean, you, I would love you to talk about not only Sonny Lester, but also how you mic'd the bass and the drums because I can't handle uh, a lot of, the rhythm sections now are so amped up, they're so in your face and it takes away from the melodic, the ability of the melodies to take over. With Eddie and Don, you you did not mic it that way, so you can riff on that any way you want. Um, I mean, we're going back a long ways. I, I'm not sure what I had for breakfast this morning, so uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I couldn't tell you exactly what I did, but I probably had a condenser mic, maybe an '87 or a '67 uh, for Eddie. Probably not a a DI. If I did, it was just a little bit of a little bit of it in the mix, just to get the the real low end and the sustain from the bass. And they could have been all in the same room. Um, uh, I I couldn't tell you to be honest, you know, to be sure, you know exactly how I mic things. As far as the drums went, it was probably most of the sound is probably the overheads and. Uh, you know, now I generally mic the top of the snare and the bottom of the snare. Uh, for, for this, maybe no mic on the hi-hat and maybe just one mic on the snare. And most of the sound came from the overheads, right. which uh, I, I liked uh, the, uh, the uh, Telefunken 251s. And it got, the, if you put them in the right place, you'd pick up enough cymbals and tom uh, toms uh, and a, a good part of the snare sound so generally with four mics you could get you know there's your drum sound i mean and it's it, got some ambience to it yeah i mean it's so i mean so i mean let's just get it i mean was what was what was the what was your first record date actually that you enjoyed well my first one was uh, i i started at a place called don elliott's he had a a, a studio on 40th street and how I got that gig, it's a, really a, a, a great story in terms of being at the right place. Yeah, that's and what it's about. Trusting, it's trusting your gut yeah. and, you know, that kind of stuff. So one night, I, 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 I had gone to RCA Institutes, which was an electronics school, where basically I just got a, a background in fixing radios and TVs, you know, and gave me the opportunity to work on transmitters because I did get a, a license uh, so I, I got a, I was going to start a job the next day at a, um, a company that made test equipment and my job was going to be in quality control, you know, just to make sure every spot check, sure. every meter, uh, you know, a very dry kind of technical electronics job. But the night before I was hanging out with a friend of mine named David Lucas, who happened to be Don Elliott's cousin. And David was Don's engineer also at his, at his studio. But David was looking to, uh, get, he was a, uh, a musician and singer, very talented guy. And he was looking to do more of that, more uh, writing and performing. So he said, do you want to be an, an engineer? Uh, this is Sunday night. And I had, I didn't even know what he was talking about. I said, what's that? You know, and he says, I can only give you 25 bucks a week, you know, to, uh, you know, for some food. 
but you'll have fun. You'll like it. So I said, I got a job. I'm starting tomorrow. He says, quit. So that, I said, okay, I'll do it. So the next morning, that's what I did. I called up. I said, I'm not showing up. I quit. <laughs> and, um, and to my uh, pleasant surprise, when I walked in the studio, first it, it looked like I was walking into you know, some Star Trek uh, set to me. You know, I mean, I, I had a background in electronics, but I, n I never really saw the inside of a, uh, I, well, I shouldn't say I'd never seen the inside of a studio, but not like this. So Don had, there were only five one-inch eight-track machines back then. This is about 65, I wow. guess. Wow, wow. 1965. And he had one of them, and the one that he had, he got from Les Paul. Wow. So that, my entrance into the recording world was working on an 8-track machine when multi-track back then was either 3-track or 4-track in the, in the majority of the, the, the world. And um, so after I was there, and David, was, who was not really a, a trained kind of engineer, but he knew his way around. He knew how to get the right sounds and things. So after about a month... He says, okay, we're going to do our first session. And it was with Ravi Shankar. And Wow. Wait, hold, uh, hold on. Don Elliott, this cat, not, not, the, not the, the jazz player. Yeah, the vibes. He used to play vibes. Are you and, he did so many cool albums on fantasy with Paul Desmond that I have. Such sure, killers. and he used to do, do a lot of work for Quincy. Quincy Jones. I met Quincy Jones back then because whenever Quincy came to town to do like a movie score, he would always hire Don to either play vibes or mellophone or sing. He was a really good singer too. This, so, and so that's and how the, I met so this, Quincy. Just be, yeah, dude, I'm sorry to cut you off. That, so the, the Shankar out was cut on what label? Though I don't remember seeing an Elliott label though. No, it wasn't a label. Yeah. This was for a, a film. So this woman brought in a 16-millimeter uh, projector. They were going to play to the film. It was like a psychedelic kind of film. I love this. This is unbelievable. And so David and I are like flipping out. It was, everybody's bringing in incense. They're burning incense. They're hanging uh, pictures on the wall. They're laying out rugs. And we're thinking, wow, what are these guys going to leave behind? We're going to be partying you know, for whatever they're going to leave behind, which didn't be, it wasn't the case at all. It was just straight ahead you know yeah, right. incense was the most decadent thing that was being smoked there being burnt there so uh so we set up the projector in the control room made a racket of course but don told me he said that a doctor is going to pay for this at the end of the night tell him how much it is he'll give you a check so at the end of the night i went to the doctor and he signs the check dr timothy leary no way my first this is my first session, and uh, no way, uh, Tim Leary. Tim Leary came. No, so, hold on, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm gonna say this is Ravi. Ravi. Who, so who? It was. It was all Indian musicians, or it was it was uh, who else? I'm 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 pretty sure. Uh, you know, I don't really re remember that that much of it, but it was uh, it was uh, Ravi Shankar and you know his his crew. Kind of. Alu Rock. Uh, and, and, you, and, and do we have a name of the of the soundtrack? <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't remember. I, I, I don't. Uh, but you're putting this at around 60, 60, 65. Right. Right. This and it was for. Uh, it was a sixteen millimeter film. Uh, I, I think who was who used to do the light shows? Uh, was it Joshua? Uh, I love this. I, I need to uh, know. Uh, I, I'm looking. Raga Gandhi. I'm trying to figure out which which soundtrack eventually what how it came out. I mean, this I don't know. I, I could I could try to reach out to David Lucas and see if he if he remembers. I and I could get so, back to you. No, but I mean, go ahead. I mean, so you were. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is the, you must have been your mind must have been blown after that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know. Uh, nobody knew who uh, Timothy Leary was at that point. This was about a year or two years before he he was on television all the time in the news. So uh, he hadn't really made a big splash yet. Yeah, I was going to say, because his, right his, the, the April experiment at Boston University, my alma mater, was 65. So this was a, so it was, he was still not that, he, was not, he had not yet elevated to that status at that point. It, was, it took a couple more years. 
So he's right, right. I, I didn't realize, I didn't recognize the name when when he signed this. So I just thought it was some doctor. So I mean, uh, that was and that was your and that came out on. I mean, it didn't even matter at that point what label it was on. I mean, it it, it just eventually came out somewhere. It was. I, I just, it just struck me. My recollection is that it was just some independent film that this woman was was uh, producing, and this was the music for it. Uh, that's all. That's my recollection of it. Anyway, you know. Okay, so I want to. I just transcribed this uh, this from Val Gray. You know Val? Do you know Val Gray? Um. Mm, name sounds familiar. I he, can't say. He I, was one of he was kind of your brethren on the left coast. I mean, uh, he he did all the James Taylor stuff with you know the section Kunkel, Korchmar, and Sklar. He works with the Mizell brothers in L.A. and same kind of time period. He said to me, and I want you to just think about this in your career, and if you ever did anything like this, he said, I can remember doing a record with Linda Ronstadt years ago called Prisoner in Disguise. And I decided I was not going to use any bottom EQ on any instrument throughout the making of the entire record. I was going to deal with mic placement. If you go back and listen to that record, the bottom end is all natural. There's no bass added to any instrument or any microphone. Did you ever do that? Sure. Can you talk about a time uh, when you did that? Uh, uh, when I first got, got into it, uh, I used to go in... Uh, like I mentioned about wh what I did with White Elephant and Mike Maneri, I would be, be in whenever there was, I had free time, I was in the studio with my friends, with Donald McDonald. I learned a lot from Donald. Uh, what did you learn? From, one, this is so important. What did you learn from that guy? He was a monster drummer, dude. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the sounds, you know, I, I, what do you think? You know, I would record him and he'd come in. What do you think? Well, it should be more bottom on the kick drum or, you know, and I respected all these guys. They were, you know, my heroes. And uh, so I would listen to him. And uh, there's, there's one track on that White Elephant where if you want to hear some, some bottom, uh, it's called More to Love. Yes. It's a, a song that Nick, Nick Holmes sings. Uh, and that's, there's probably even a little of the bottom that's rolled off just because it was, it was vinyl and it couldn't handle all that low bottom. But I always liked bottom. But uh, to get back to your, your question, uh, that was my always my approach, and same with Phil Ramone. He used to expound on that uh, all the time. Find it's like I mentioned before about how you get a good drum sound. You you do all of those things that I mentioned, but it's about putting the the instrument in the right place, getting the right microphone, putting it in the right place. And sometimes you could just move it an inch or two. Uh, and you could get a difference in the bottom, how much bottom uh, you're getting, how much bottom buildup you're getting. So my uh, initial uh, approach to recording was finding that right mic. And to this day, I don't, uh, if, if I can just come right from the mic, go right into Pro Tools, that's the approach I take for, let's say, a, a vocal, because there's something to that clean, that cleanliness of recording without going through extra uh, processing that you can't get with, as soon as you put any kind of EQ in, it's going to deteriorate the sound somewhat. So you, you better need it and you better uh, make sure you wind up with something better than when you started. A lot of people just reach for EQ or processing just as a matter of habit. And sometimes you can take uh, uh, all of that processing out and you find where you started from was you were way better off. I, I, did a, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine who had a, 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 a setup in his house. He was a drummer. And he says, can you come over and help me with this mix? And so I just took a quick look at his, his, uh, his Pro Tools session and I said, let's take all of the, the plugins out. And he was amazed. He was calling me for three days, saying how amazed he was, how uh, how great it sounded without anything in. So people get hung up on adding or uh, you know going crazy with signal processing that's not really necessary. It's it's not that it's never. I wouldn't say never, but um, I like to start with 
with as little processing as uh, as possible. Uh, and that's another reason why I like doing a a direct two track jazz record. It's got that special. Besides it being uh, the energy from the live performance and no mixing later, you know, you're bypassing so many different elements of of electronics. Uh, is a, there's a certain clarity to that sound that uh, you it's, you just don't get once you start adding processing. How come there? How come you? I mean, later in this quote, Val Gray keeps going on talking about you know he's like I'm constantly doing stuff when I mix records for people. I'm developing products or ways for API and comparing them to the old school hardware stuff. And I would say 99% of the time, the old school hardware stuff beats the plug-in because it's warmer and bigger. And it's just easier to reach for an equalizer and add 200 cycles or 400 cycles or whatever. And the, the kids today, they're working with algorithms rather than, than if, the, if it even feels good. So, I mean, how, how that drummer that you talked about who had the epiphany when you, when you took all the plugins at, why, why do you think it's not, is it happening more than I think it is? Or why isn't it happening more? Why don't people realize the authenticity and can they not hear it? I mean, if they had digital beats crunched into their ears for so many years, they don't even know what it sounds like. Uh, I just had a friend of mine send me an email. Could I come over and help him get a vocal sound? And he said, and he d described the chain of this compressor, then the EQ and then another compressor, then into his rig. And I reminded him that he asked me the same question probably about six months ago, <laughs> and I told him the same thing. Take all of that shit out of there and just do it, uh, just come out of your preamp, if you have a decent preamp, and go into your, your hard drive your, or your, uh, your workstation. And, um, and then go from there. Uh, why people go back? I don't know. I think they're, uh, if they're going to buy some... Plugins, I guess they think they're, you know, they should be using them. <laughs> I don't know. Did I mean, you, yeah. I, I, I do agree that the, um, the, uh, the hardware uh, generally sounds better, but I've got the, uh, I, probably about 95% of the plugins that I use are universal audio, and those are the best I've heard. Uh, they've got some really good stuff, and it's got a, a lot of, pluses to it you could buy you buy one plug-in but now you've got an infinite number of them you know for uh, in most cases uh, and it's and it's um, easily documented you open up your session two months from now and where you're where you left off without having to take pictures of hardware so you know there's a, 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 a there's a pros and cons to to both but the universal audio stuff is, I find, is, is great. Did you, uh, when was the first ch time you got to see Cat, the cat like Miles uh, Davis play live? Uh, you know, I don't know if I ever saw Miles live. I remember seeing Ornette Coleman probably in the 50s, I guess, at Town Hall. But I worked with Miles in the studio. Yeah, no, no. Uh, Can you talk about seeing or, there were no bar lines with Ornette? I mean, what was he doing at that time when you saw him? Uh, uh, who, uh, Ornette? Ornette, or, yeah, or Miles? Ornette, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I just seem to remember, I think Symphony Sid came out and introduced him, and uh, he had his, you know, his plastic sacks, and I, I could tell you, you know, uh, my recollection of it, other than it was, you know what I expected of him because I had listened. To, you know, actually, I came up on jazz, uh, uh, like uh, all through high school. I used to play vibes, and so, so I come great, from more man. of a oh, jazz. So, yeah, was, this is what I mean because it was the popular music at that time. So you must have been. I mean, were you playing like uh, like Cal Jader with George Shearing that kind of stuff? What were you playing? What were you getting? Uh, of? Well, uh, uh, Cal Jader was one of my heroes, and my other hero was Milt Jackson. Of course, Bags. Yeah, yeah Bags. And uh, w w uh, and the band that I played in, uh, one of the early thrills of my musical career was we used to play uh, back then. The, uh, the, the bigger churches, like in Brooklyn, used to, it was a big Latin dance craze back then. So they used to have these um, dances, and they would have Tito Puente and 
Cal Jada and these kind of people. And, but they used to advertise it as continuous music. So my band would play, and then when we were done with our set, this was the highlight of the night, we'd play some Latin tune, and then Tito Puente's band would come up and join us, and then we would get off. And then we would do the, uh, they would do the same for us. And then one night we were going to play opposite uh, Cal Jada, and he saw I was going to set my vibes up, and he says, oh, you don't have to do that, kid. You can use my vibes. Oh. Wow. I, you know, 17 years what old, man. This was, that guy, what unbelievable, man. Yeah, yeah. It was great. So, uh, But I, even from before then, I, I, I loved his music. Uh, it was always great. The, um, when was the first time you, uh, you crossed paths with uh, the transcendent character Krishnadas? Oh, Probably, uh, I guess about 25 years ago or so. Uh, he was involved with, I think it was Triloka Records, I think is when it, uh, and I may have met him when we, uh, I was doing a, a session with George Mraz hmm. that he was involved with. Well, I think where, that might have well, been the first. I'm just, I had, you know, he had, you, I know you listened to part of the interview and we, we went up, we cooked for about, an hour and 25 minutes and I just found his story to be completely inspiring because he was I mean had, he was near despair in like 1994 he was in a pretty miserable state of mind and eventually he just realized that he needed to start chanting and, and singing and so how did you guys wind up working together well uh, a guy named Paul Sloman a mutual friend he was connected with his Triloka records uh, more directly than KD was, uh, and that's probably how we met. I, it, uh, uh, it could have been that KD went to this guy, Paul, uh, and asking him for some help or a recommendation for somebody to mix one of his records. So that could have been how it started. But ever since then, we've been, uh, I just finished, uh, just in the past couple of days, mixing something for him. It's uh, for a... Uh, instructional video that that he shot in london so i just finished mixing that what do you how do you uh in the studio how do you tend to, to record his his music you know i mean it's definitely uh different and it's good well there, I, I did one session with him where there were about 12 or 13 musicians uh one of which was uh walter becker wow. playing bass wow. and uh rick allen you know, from Def Leppard was playing drums, <laughs> bunch of various uh, guitar-like instruments, uh, you know, mandolins and things, and about 50 or 60 people chanting, and it was all in the same room, and it was awesome. It was great. And then the la and the last record that that was maybe maybe 10, 15 years ago, and I just finished a record with him just a few weeks ago, where I had everybody sit in a circle. Uh, we did just the instruments first. And everybody just sat in a circle and uh, just played in the same room. I said, told them, you know, if anybody makes a mistake, you're going to hear it. We'll just do another take. You know, it's no big deal. Um, uh, with few exceptions, some stuff we could fix. But uh, they liked the idea of, you know, all being in a circle and really close together and playing that way. So that, that's, there I, you know, there you go. It's the same, like what I was saying before, that's the, my function at that point is to keep them comfortable because then they're going to get the best, best performance is going to come. And that leakage is, you know, you make it work for you. And, and that's where the magic is. That's, that's when... You know, you're going to listen to, uh, in most cases, you're going to listen out of two boxes, you know, two speakers. And uh, when you have some leakage, uh, it's, it's not like, you know, you can't uh, define it as it's coming out of just one little place. It's kind of, it's like when you're in the room. When you're in the room, you're hearing sounds bounce off the walls and <laughs> you're hearing all these reflections yeah, yeah, yeah. and when you have leakage you know you're coming close to uh reproducing that kind of that sonic beauty it's also about i mean the 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 idea of having 
real human beings in, in a room together at the same time uh, and not having to cut and paste. And I think of these rhythm sections. I mean, can you talk about uh, the rhythm section of Anthony Jackson and Steve Gadd and uh, how you how you got them, I mean, on so many sessions just to sound so clean, but also the feeling was is always still there? Well, you get Anthony Jackson and Steve Gatt. <laughs> that's the way. That's the way you do it. And both of them, you know, with guys like that, you know, they make me look good. They're, you know, they've. they've uh, Steve takes the time to tune his drums. Uh, it's rare that he's going to put any dampening on on the drum to get any to, uh, any uh, tone. Like I'll usually ask Steve or drummers to hit their snare drum, and then I'll solo the mics that I have on the toms. And lots of times you'll hear a tom ring when he hits the snare. And if it's a little bit of it is okay, but if it's too much, then that, that becomes part of the snare sound. Right, right. You know, and that ring is going to go into the overheads too. So ideally you don't want that, to, you know, your, uh, the, you don't want to have um, sympathetic vibrations setting off your other drums. <laughs> And the best way to make that not happen is by tuning. And Steve is a, a master at that. And Anthony is an excellent bass player. So those, if I'm working with those guys, I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to sound good. Tell me a little bit before we wrap up set one here. Um, so did you know cats like Ronnie Cooper from back in the Palladium? Did you go to the Palladium a lot to see... Uh, uh, uh I mean, no, uh, I met, I probably met Ronnie around those white elephant days. Absolutely. No, I was, you're, uh, you're, you're, this is such a mercurial thing because you came up a jazzer. You're most well known for these rock albums, which aren't in my bag per se. I'm much more into the other stuff. But it's, yeah. it's, so, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I just, I mean, I, I see you just did stuff with Palmieri, Cooper, you know, I'm like, I'm like, well, if he was a vibraphonist and getting off on Latin dance bands and stuff, he was probably going to the Palladium to see these cats when they were playing with Mongol and stuff. Uh, well, interestingly enough, because I played vibes, I was uh, working on an Aerosmith record hmm. and uh, <laughs> with Jack Douglas, and we were mixing Sweet Emotion. I don't know if you're not familiar with that song. Yeah, I know that song. Yeah. Okay, so um, <laughs> Jack said, yeah, the bass is just not quite happening and he knew I played vibes. He says, what if you double that with, uh, on marimba? I says, it'd be better if it was like bass marimba. It would be cool. Mm -hmm. So I'm on that record. I doubled the bass line. Oh, on, are, uh, on Sweet Emotion? Yeah. Oh, that, on a bass marimba. That's Bobby Hutcherson's uh, great instrument when, right there. Unbelievable. When you, uh, when you, if you listen to it, you listen to the intro, and then after like the first chorus, it goes back to that, that bass line again you'll hear there's like a certain kind of extra percussiveness on the bass sound. It's just like right with the bass. I did. So, uh, I, that, uh, that's such a great nugget, man. What a, you know, we just cooked for an hour here. Uh, maybe we can do set two sometime later this month if you're around. Sure. All right. That sure. Was, it was great, man. I it, love it. It was great to hang with you, man. I'll get you a copy of this later. And, uh, and stories like the ones you just said will be blasting out all over new media later on. So uh, cool. enjoy it, man. Great. I got a million of them. Yeah, no, we'll talk more. It's great, <laughs> great to hear you, Jay. All right, Jake. Later on. Thank you. Peace. All right, buddy. Bye. Bye. Just an incredible uh, engineer, and as you come to find out, uh, uh, actually a jack of all trades, a vibraphonist as well, played a percussive a bass marimba on Sweet Emotion. Uh, we'll be back with Julian Priester right after this.